Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Tanefsky, and today I'm joined by Chris Cassidy, the president and CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. Chris's life before becoming president of the foundation is simply astonishing. Chris attended the U.S. Naval Academy and became a member of the Navy SEALs, ultimately becoming a commander of SEAL units. After Chris left the SEALs, he joined NASA as an astronaut, commanded the International Space Station, rose to chief NASA astronaut in 2015, and is recognized now as having spent the fifth most time of any human being in space. After leaving his military career, Chris was tapped to be the president and CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. As you will hear, in addition to having recently broken ground on this museum that honors Medal of Honor recipients, The foundation will also be building a national monument in Washington, D.C. It also has a leadership institute that will educate future generations about these amazing stories of heroism. It was a privilege to speak with Chris, and I think you will be inspired by the work that the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation is doing. Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Denevsky, and today I'm speaking with Christopher Cassidy, the president and CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. Chris, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Oh, Brooke, great to be with you. Thanks for having me as a guest. So before we discuss the work of the foundation, I'm certain that listeners will want to hear a little bit more about your own experience and particularly your experience in space. So let me ask you, I'm sure many others have before, do you have a few meaningful experiences that you can share with us, just stories that stick in your mind? Oh my gosh, yeah. The, I, was, I feel so lucky that I've been able to um, experience space, live on the space station, work as an asset astronaut, and really all of that representing the citizens of our country. And, and, and quite truthfully, while you're in space looking down on the planet, it's representing mankind uh, off of the planet. And there's so many different experiences from the mundane things as simple as like, what is it? Opening the hatch, uh, coming back in from a spacewalk and smelling this unique smell of space to uh, brushing your teeth and looking at the window going uh, at the earth going by to more significant experiences that people often think of like launch day, returning back to earth and landing, exiting the spacecraft on a spacewalk. I mean, there's so many different things to talk about. It's hard to give it into one answer, but it's just an all in all, it's an amazing experience. I was so glad I had three, three uh, space flights and just really, really lucky. Yeah, and I know when you're younger, you were also a Navy SEAL, which is incredible, and we could talk a lot about that too, but did you ever see yourself going into space, or was this something, an amazing opportunity that just kind of came with life experience? Well, it just kind of came. I, I was not a kid thinking about space. I mean, I, I, I understood what astronauts did and, and thought it was cool, but it was not something that I thought I would end up doing. I wanted to be a, a professional basketball referee. I knew I wouldn't make it in the, as a player. So um, that was my goal to be a referee. And, and, uh, and then I got in the Navy and I, I, I learned about the path to become an astronaut and how you do it and when you apply and, and what the application process is like. And, and that, all of that kind of motivated me. So I was about 25 or 26 years old when I first 
started to be serious about it. And then I was selected when I was 34. So between your experience of space and also being a Navy SEAL, how do you think any of these previous experiences have prepared or shaped your role as the president and CEO of the foundation? You know, it's interesting, Brooke. You, you, um, with every step in life, you are ready for it, whether you know it or not, based on all of the experiences that you've had up to then. You know, when you're first starting out in maybe a boy or girl is a babysitter, you know, when you're 15 years old and you're nervous because it's your first time, but you're ready. Your parents have taught you, you've been to CPR training and, and you're ready for that. And as you advance in life, in my case, um, when at each step of the way in my SEAL career as a small unit leader and then leading more folks and then actually being in combat, leading, leading um, troops in the mountains of Afghanistan and realizing that the decisions that we made as a unit affect the loved ones of people that are thousands of miles away. And then becoming an astronaut in my first mission, just worried about making sure I was doing the right thing. And then on to my last mission in 2020, when I was a commander of the space station. And I remember when we, uh, when I was turning out the lights on the first night of being the commander of the space station, it sunk in on me like, wow, the responsibility of this multinational effort is resting on me. And am I ready for that? Do I know enough to do that? And I realized like you do, you're, you're prepared and, and each step of the way. And so all of those military experiences that happened in my life that happened to be in the military, I think prepared me to, to lead a small, a small team of people that are um, working hard to build a museum for Medal of Honor recipients and a leadership institute. We can talk about all that. We can talk about more of that in a Definitely. second. But every step of the way, um, you add another arrow to your quiver in terms of life experiences. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, even in my experience, I know I'm 18. I still have a long way to go career-wise. But you really just, it sometimes feels like the opportunities end up finding you and you just have to accept them and do your best with it, which I think is amazing. Right. When you when you were 16, did you think you'd be interviewing all these people? For, I uh, did not. I, de- I definitely right. did not. I just sometimes, yeah, sometimes exactly as you said, you just, you have an opportunity in front of you and you just take it one step at a time. <laughs> sometimes really awesome opportunities like this come along. Yep, exactly. And so I'm just curious, you know, how did you end up joining the foundation as the president and CEO? Um, so as a, as a member of the United States military my whole life, I, I've, of course, I know how significant the Medal of Honor is. I never actually met any Medal of Honor recipients while I was active duty. Well, maybe one towards the end of my career. But when I was about to retire, my good friend who happens to be on a board of directors, a member of the board of directors on our, our foundation, he reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in helping out with the project. And the more I learned, just the more it felt like a natural fit and uh, and how cool it would be and is it is to um, be part of an effort to bring something so significant to the Medal of Honor recipients. And so while I imagine most people have heard of this Medal of Honor before, those who might not have, can you tell us what it is and just some of the criteria and circumstances that typically leads to being someone being awarded the medal? Absolutely. So the, the Medal of Honor is our nation's highest award for military valor. And it has to be in a combat 
environment. It has to be observed by uh, several living witnesses, and it has to be of significant um, gallantry is the word that's in the in the citations. But really, really quite an act. An act that when you read it, you go, "How in the world did one person do all of that?" Uh, there are lots of military medals and heroes get awarded many of them all the time. But to give you an idea of how rare the Medal of Honor is, it started in 1861. So President Lincoln, in the time of the Civil War, said we need a medal for military heroism. Since then, until right now, Brooke, 40 million people have worn the uniform of our military. Less than 4,000 out of those 40 million people have been given this, this medal. And um, so if you think about those odds, if, if uh, 4,000 out of 40 million would graduate college, you know, th think about how hard college would be. So it's quite something. It's quite an award, and it's really, really meaningful to members of the military and the whole nation, but uh, it's, it's pretty significant. Now, there... You ask, people often ask us, you mean there's not already a, a, na a national museum for these people? And, and there's not. There exists small uh, regional or hometown or, or um, there's a nice one in Chattanooga, Tennessee, other, other museums and, and uh, historical centers. But this will be the, uh, a national museum located in the center of the country for all to enjoy. Yeah. And just to... You know, something that was really interesting to me as I was learning more about the medal was actually I read that President Truman, when awarding the medal to other, you know, recipients, he said that he'd rather have the medal than be president, which I thought was really incredible and really gets across just the meaning behind the medal and just what it represents and how significant it is. Yeah, exactly. Well said, President Truman. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned the museum. So can you tell us how the idea of the museum to honor the recipients of a medal came to be? Sure, yeah. So the Medal of Honor Society is the group of living recipients. And so their headquarters in Charleston, South Carolina, there happens to be right now, by the way, 65 living Medal of Honor recipients. And um, that organization for a, a while ago I'm not sure of the exact time frame, long before I was involved, maybe 10 years or so ago, thought we should have a museum, a significant museum. And there was an initial effort to build it in Charleston, South Carolina. But for a number of reasons, the organization paused and said, maybe we should assess where else in the country we could place this museum that will maximize visitation, be available for all to see, have a nice plot of land associated with it, and all kinds of different criteria. And through that process, they uh, narrowed it down between Denver and the Dallas area, Arlington, Texas specifically, which is where we are. And, uh, and, and Arlington was the winner in the middle of the country, close to a major airport. There's a professional football stadium, Dallas Cowboys, professional baseball stadium, Texas Rangers, Six Flags Amusement Park, a brand new convention center, uh, uh, an entertainment district around it. So it's just a really, really well-trafficked and nice place yeah. to put something to complement all those sports venues, um, a museum. And the city gave a really nice plot of land. So that's the long story on how we are in, in Texas. Getting a little bit more into the museum, can you share what the mission of the museum is? Really, the mission of the museum is to reach out and inspire people who visit. 
what, you know, these stories are amazing stories of courage and sacrifice and really love, love for teammate, love for members of your unit, love for the brother and sister to your left and right of you and inspiring people to lead a better life um, in their own lives through motivating um, stories that will be told in, in the museum. Now, the museum can't be visited by everybody. So we also will have an institute that will uh, inspire, educate youth, adults, and universities alike. You know, I'll have three centers. Um, we can talk about them more of that in a second. But all of that to say that the museum itself will um, have about 35,000 th 35, square feet. So what does that mean? That means we, we can't tell 3,500 stories. We'll have to mm. break it down to, um, to some su smaller subset. But with digital content nowadays, you can access pretty much any one of those stories and, and we can rotate out the exhibits. And so we're not, we're, we think we can really inspire folks that way. But, you know, Brooke, you'd probably be really bored if you came to a museum and just had to read a bunch of plaques. Mm. You've maybe been to museums like that, and that's not how museums inspire people these days. So we need to have a nice blend of technology and experiences and hands-on things and interacting um, with people and digital digital recipients, if you will. And and so we're we're in the process of doing exactly that. Definitely, and I think you know some of these stories themselves are just so captivating, and I think a lot of people will be surprised and shocked to just hear about some of these incredible tales. And so each of the over 3,500 recipients of the medals do have these incredible stories. And so I know this next question is a bit unfair, but if you have any that in particular to share, I'd love to hear some of the ones that have stuck with you over the years. Oh my goodness. There's, there's some amazing ones. Um, there's a movie coming out called Devotion that will be released here in the, in the fall and that is a Medal of Honor recipient named Tom Hudner. And his action was kind of special because his squadron mate in aviation was the first African-American naval pilot. And this guy, Jesse, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank on his name uh, right now as I'm talking. But the, that gentleman cra had crashed his plane and Tom Hudner landed his plane on the, on the side of the mountain to ra rescue, rescue his buddy. I love the the tale there of love for brother. Um, we have a medal of honor recipient that's on our board of directors, general Pat Brady, who was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And his story is pretty remarkable about flying helicopters to rescue thousands of people over the course of his time in Vietnam. But one particular night where it was so foggy, you couldn't see the front of the rotor blades through the, through the windshield. And he flew into the night and saved uh, countless people on multiple trips when they when his aircraft was all shot and barely flyable. Uh, and then my personal friend, uh, Britt Slabinski, another Navy SEAL, he was on a mountaintop um, in Afghanistan. And I was one mountaintop away listening to, his, to the battle unfold as, as uh, he did his actions uh, there in Afghanistan. Just so many, it's really, really hard to pick I one know. book, you know, it's, it's real. it's kind of, um, I, yeah, I can't even go there, but it, it's difficult. Definitely. I mean, I know I have in my own house, even before this whole experience where I got really an amazing chance to dive into the metal, I have a whole book full of the stories. And so, oh, there you yeah, go. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I definitely understand it's, you could talk about it for a very, very long time. So, but thank mm -hmm. you for sharing. And 
I really love to circle back to you mentioned the Leadership Institute. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what this Leadership Institute is and kind of what it entails. Uh, yeah, very good. Um, so this is an aspect of the project. The project, by the way, is a museum, the Institute and a monument on the mall in D.C., and this leg of the triad, the Institute, is probably one that um, the recipients and, and, and me too are most excited about because it can reach the most broad spectrum of the United States. As we met, briefly mentioned, not everybody can come to Texas and visit the museum, but we, the internet is far and wide and almost available in, in most houses around the country. And, and, um, and we choose to inspire not only through the internet, but through classrooms. Uh, there'll be three centers, one center for character excellence, which is fo focused on the K through 12 space. And uh, we're starting out locally in Texas because that's the, uh, the state board of education we can interact with uh, for the first step and kind of get in, in with classrooms and have students come visit uh, for field trips with, with content available to teachers so that they can have a module associated with the field trip. And, and, and we're working on that right now, actually. Um, and I should say the Institute will, we're starting to put content out and put it in effect before the museum is built. The museum has still two more years until we open the doors. And in that time, we can actually start rolling out content and, and inspiring people and having symposiums and speakers and sessions uh, in the Institute before the doors open in the museum. The, because the Institute will be housed in the museum eventually, but right now we can operate it just locally. Uh, the second center will be more adult focused, uh, corporate training, adult continuing education, inspiring uh, those folks to, to in their professional lives through the stories of the recipients. And then the third center is kind of a think tank where we'll bring together organizations to explore concepts like honor and courage and sacrifice, for example, with the Air Force Academy and, uh, and other military academies in February we're um, host, helping host an event in Colorado Springs to discuss honor and courage and that, that kind of thing. So, so the Institute is something that we're all very, very passionate about and excited to bring it to life. Great. And I know that the third prong of the foundation's work is building a national monument in D.C., which just last year was authorized by Congress and signed into law by the president. And so can you just tell us why this monument is so important? Absolutely. So initially, there was some thought about putting the museum in Washington, D.C., but it's, it's a long, hard um, process to put a museum in D.C. It can take upwards of 20, 25 yeah. years to go through all of the processes and, and where do you get the land. It's all, a lot of the land is, is spoken for, but the National Mall there in D.C., if you're familiar with the, the green patch of, of, of lawn between the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument and on down to the Capitol, uh, it has designated spots for monuments. And, and so the organization, before my arrival, sometime around 2018 or 19, decided that we'd, we'd be better off focusing on a monument in D.C. That's something we can achieve and do in a, a reasonable time frame and do the museum elsewhere, which we already talked about. So in order to get authorized to be on the mall, you have to have legislation. You mentioned it correctly, Brooke. It went unanimously passed last year and President Biden put it into effect and and so now we're working through the next steps this year to, the, to identify the exact plot, like where, no kidding, where on that green uh, splotch are we going to be? And depending on how close you are, there's different rules on, on uh, additional levels of approval, and we're working through all of that right now. 
So we don't know because we don't know the exact plot, what shape it is, how big is the plot, then it really doesn't make sense to design them a monument yet. You know, you really need to know what you're, if you're going to build a house, you need to know how big of a lot yet you can build one. So that's the phase we're in. Once we identify that plot, then we'll begin the, um, the design, the architecture and construction on the, on the monument. And I think it's great that there will be two different locations for people to visit or learn more, or just get to explore the metal. And so I think that's really cool as well. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And so I'm just curious if we go ahead five years from now and observe the results of the foundation's work, what would you hope to see in the future? Oh, man, I, I hope to see. You know, on, on a, a snapshot in a day in life five years from now in Texas, a busy a busy museum, people coming in through on the lawn, they're setting up chairs for an evening event, um, you know, or, or a military ROTC graduation. Inside, there's, there's a, a key leaders of our country giving keynote speeches in, in our theater and visitors alike up, upstairs leaving with a young boy or girl tugging on their mom's jacket saying, did you see the one story about so-and-so? Uh, at the same time in that day, there's uh, visitors walking all around the monument in, in DC and, and students around the country downloading and watching uh, digital content that we're producing through our institute and partnering with other uh, higher education uh, places. So just all of that activity is what uh, excite, excites me, excites me. And to know that we were a, uh, we have a small team of people, about 20 people, really working really hard to bring this to life. And uh, we're all pr really proud to do it. After hearing all of this, I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in, you know, how to support all this work of the foundation. And so how can people best donate or just support in general the work of the foundation? Uh, absolutely. Thanks for asking. We uh, Our website, mohmuseum.org. You can go there, find out uh, anything you want about the uh, organization who are um, leadership team is our staff, our board of directors, our content in the museum, and and and, and uh, I think even you can see a live shot of the construction site because the museum is under construction. And a little bit boring right now. It's just a kind of a dirt, and the crane moves every now and then, but that's progress. Mm. Uh, and on that same website, you can click to donate if you choose choose to, or just simply forward the link um, to your friends so that other folks are aware of it as well, because it's not just a Texas project, it's a national project. And before we conclude, is there anything about the museum, monument, institute, or really anything you'd like to add for our listeners at home? I want to ask a little bit about you. How <laughs> did you come with this idea to, to do this podcast? Yeah, I actually started, I believe, my sophomore year of high school. And so a lot of high schoolers, I think, are interested in charity and nonprofit work. But at least my experience was you don't always realize what's the most effective causes or you just don't know enough about the individual organization. So kind of I did not have a background in podcasting, but kind of just started from an interest to, you know, getting involved in charity myself. And then a lot of really crazy cool opportunities like this just happened you know over time and so I'm very lucky of that. So how, how did you get your first podcast victim? Yeah that's not the right word but you know what I mean. Yeah it started really really local and so it was just you might have heard Make-A-Wish Foundation. They oh, had yeah, yeah they had when I was really young like elementary school I would do lemonade stands and such for with friends with them and so in high school I reached out to the local director of that, and then 
I did I did not really know what I was doing at that time, but he was luck- he was nice enough to sit down with me and listening to my rambling a bit on the first episode. And then, and you know, I've gone to the point where now people in the Philippines will be reaching out to me. So it's really crazy. Wow. And um, do you actively think of, of people to ask or do they sort of come to you? You know, it's definitely been a combination now, but especially towards the first half, definitely a lot of research involved. And the general philosophy I use to kind of differentiate between those is often, I don't know if you're familiar with the effective altruism movement, but essentially mm-hmm. the idea, yeah, the idea of what are some of the nonprofits doing the most effective givings with their money. And then, so I do a lot of research, but I think as you go on, you kind of have a better understanding of what to look for. I'm super impressed, Brooke. And uh, uh, I just, my hat's off to you for for taking on a project like this and educating people on what's important. Because there, there are so many good causes. I feel fortunate that I'm working for one of them. But um, as an astronaut looking down at the planet, you realize that the planet is a spaceship for all of us. And it's a place that needs to be taken care of. So there's plenty of nonprofits that are thinking about the uh, global climate or water availability for everybody or global communications. And, um, and there's just so many great causes. And I, I just applaud you significantly for, uh, for taking a stab at educating people on all of these. So thank you, Brooke. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. And of course, I was so excited to hear when, you know, you're interested on coming on. And I just want to thank you not only for your service to the country and uniform, but now in connection with bringing these stories and lessons of amazing medalists to future generations. And so it's really incredible. And, you know, I hope my future career looks half as significant as all the amazing things you've done. So thank you so much. I'm sure it will, Brooke. I'm sure it will. You've got a bright future ahead of you. Thanks a lot. (laughs)